Question for you. You ever been to a, a restaurant, maybe local someplace, and, uh, and you're like, you know, it's been there for forever, and the first time you've gone and you're like, man, I can't believe how amazing this is. Why have we not gone here until now, you know? We are missing out all this time. I have that same dynamic, same thoughts sometimes, and I hope we will too, when it comes to this book of 1 John. Because 1 John is a very wonderful book, has very great spiritual meat, but it's also one of those books that kind of tends to get overlooked, you know? We know it's somewhere probably between Hebrews and Revelation, you know, the, the big guys there. Um, but probably most of us have not spent a lot of time in 1 John. Uh, we haven't preached a lot of sermons about 1 John. This is the first time I've done a series through 1 John. Um, and I, I hope that we come to a place where after the end of these nine weeks, where we go verse by verse, or at least paragraph by paragraph, that we say, you know what? I can't believe I missed all of that. There were some wonderful things there. So we are going to dive into the book of 1 John, and today we're just going to get through chapter 1. Thankfully, it's only 10 verses, and I th say that because there's some foundational work that we need to do, right? So if we're going to build a house of understanding, we got to lay a foundation. And so today, we're going to spend a little bit of time on that. And it might seem a little technical and less spiritual or less spiritual application until we get to the second half of the sermon at least, but it's necessary, and I think you'll see why. So let us begin with prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have cared for us enough to not only come to the cross, but to guide our lives through this word. We recognize, as the psalm says, it is a lamp unto our way in a dark place. The world doesn't seem dark, especially on a morning like this morning. And yet, in your eyes, morally, it can be a very dark place. And this word is a lamp to guide us as we walk through it. So help us. Help us to embrace what you show us. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would guide our thoughts, that you would guide my words. Help me to forget anything that's wrong or unnecessary to remember and be able to explain well what you want to emphasize to your people. And would you help each one of us to hear you, God? Not to be distracted, not to be thinking about what's ahead, but to put our full thoughts here in your word. Thank you, Father. Amen. I guess I forgot to dismiss the kids. I'm not used to that these days. So, All right. So we're actually going to break this up into three parts. And Becky, if you want to start that again, seems to be stuck. All right. I'm going to break this up into three parts. That's not it. First of all, we're going to talk about the reason that John wrote this book, and, uh, and that's going to be a good part of the background here. There we go. All right. And a lot of this is going to be in your, in your bulletin, so if you didn't get one of those, you might want to grab one because there's a little bit of going on here. This is really important that we grasp this. All the letters of the Bible are what are called occasional documents, and what that means is there was an occasion a situation that caused them to be written. Sometimes it's pretty clear what that was. Sometimes we're kind of guessing. In this case, the occasion really carries the theme of the letter all the way through. And this is one of those cases that unless we understand what's going on, we're probably going to miss the meaning of this or, or at least a good part of this. John wrote this book because he has some sort of spiritual oversight among a group of, of Christians 
in the community, we would call it Turkey today, they would call it Asia Minor back then or, or, or some other regional name. And he had some sort of oversight and there was this huge problem that had happened. There had been introduced in this church some false teaching and yet it was so attractive and had some similarities to Christianity, it had taken a large part of the people away with it. And these people tried to convince others probably uh, of the truth of this and when they were not successful, they left. And we're not told if they left on their own or if they left as a group, probably that, and maybe started their own little heretical branch or whatever. Now, these people, though they had left, they were still influencing the people behind, both because they were now a little bit demoralized, uh, but also probably they were still trying to influence people out of that. And, uh, and these people claimed to have a special anointing, a special insight, special spiritual experiences that gave them understanding to the deeper things of God. And so many of the remaining believers were confused, and they were wondering if they were missing the boat. So John writes this, and you see him talk about this again and again, those who left. He says, I'm writing to you to, to remind you of these special truths so you don't give way in all this. All right, so if that's true, if he's writing to encourage them in the face of false teaching and those who had left, then let's try and get a handle on what those false teachers were actually teaching. Now, this part's a little bit speculative uh, because basically we're reading between the lines. We've got a one-way conversation here, right? Um, you, you may remember when Bob Newhart would do some of those comedy skits. He'd pick up a phone, you know, and he's, and he's talking in one end, but you kind of begin to infer more and more about what the other person's talking. Um, and of course, he made it very, very funny that way. That's kind of what we're doing. Thankfully, though, we also have some other very early church fathers uh, Ignatius, Irenaeus, and some of the others who talked about the situation going on here and that John faced. So reading between the lines, based on their writings, I think we can say that basically they were claiming a deeper knowledge of Scripture and the meaning of Christ. And here's, here's how they would view that then. What you have in the, in the regular Gospels in the Old Testament is, is kind of the surface level, but there's a deeper meaning to all this. And... Um, the deeper meaning was going to be very much influenced by some of the other things going along. Someone put it like this. Gnostic is, we'll talk about that in a second. But basically, it was taking the teachings of Plato, marrying them to the Hebrew Bible, interpreting the Gospels through that, combined with your personal experience and a few other heretical scriptures, for example, the Gospel of Thomas, which would come later. And the end result, you get some sort of a Gnostic worldview. So that's kind of the influences that were going on. And so, you know, if you look at the Gospels, the Hebrew Bible, you can see why these people led many Christians astray, because they were appealing to some of the same ideas and same authorities. All right. So let's talk about this. What is the teaching of those who left? Well, I'm not going to list each one here because you've got them in your bulletin. First of all, and this is probably the most foundational thing. They would teach an ontological dualism. Now, ontology is just a $20 word for what is real, okay? So uh, a moral dualism would say some things are good and some things are evil, all right? An ontological dualism would say that there's a strict delineation between the spiritual and the physical, and the spiritual is very good and worthwhile and valuable, while the physical is valueless. It doesn't matter what you, because... This is, this is all going to pass away. It's not important anyway. So <clears throat> there is this dualism. 
two things, the spiritual world and the physical world. And this is where all the action was. This is where all the value was. This is what's important. And the, this physical world, you know, that, that doesn't matter at all. Now, as part of this then, there was also a very elaborate spiritual hierarchy. So, you know, a hierarchy just means, you know, an order of things like in military ranks. And there were all kinds of spiritual hierarchies that these teachers would have, depending on when you lived and where you lived. Um, but they all had something in common in that there was this one up here, or displayed another way, the beyond, the unknowable. That was like the ultimate unknowable God who wasn't affected by anything. He didn't communicate. It wasn't really a person. It was more of an idea. And, uh, and there was that. And then there were all these gradations of beings below that. And when you finally got to the bottom of all those spiritual degradations, then you have the material world. All right. So there is this hierarchy of spiritual beings. Some of them had names that might sound familiar to us, like fullness, like Christ, um, like, and, and other names that would be borrowed from the New Testament. The physical universe was not created by this God up here. No, that's the last thing he would do. The, spiritual, the physical universe is created by one of these lesser beings, usually one towards the bottom of the hierarchy at that. And uh, in some cases, some teachers would say the physical world was actually a mistake. All right, are you seeing how different this is from the biblical theology? God looked at the physical world and said, it is good. I have created this for mankind. It's a product and work of my hand. It speaks of me. And even in its fallen state, we see its beauty and its goodness. All right, what about Jesus then? Well, no, no way on this conception could we understand God coming into this physical world. No. What happened was this. Jesus of Nazareth was just a, a really righteous guy. You know, he was a good dude. In fact, he was so good that one of the spiritual beings called Christ decided to come upon and fill this Jesus with himself at his baptism. And then he helped Jesus do miracles and understand all these deeper esoteric teachings, which they would explain in their uh, false heretical writings. And then before he died on the cross, the spirit called Christ left because the spiritual being cannot suffer like that. So in this case, it's not Jesus' death that saves us at all. Jesus is good because, number one, he was a good man, shows that, that we can learn things like this. But number, but number two, he told us these secret doctrines. Um, so the upshot of that then is that salvation is knowledge. You become saved by knowing all these things, and then you form some sort of intellectual union as you go higher with each of these ideas or forces. Sin, then, is not really a thing. It's not really an issue. Sin is simply ignorance of, of this deeper truth, and that's what you have to get, get beyond. Now, I'm going to wrap this up here. The reason this is important is, is twofold. Number one, if we don't understand what John was responding to, we're going to probably misinterpret some of the verses here. Uh, for example, this one, 1 John 26. As for you, see, I'm writing to, you, to things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray, as we talked about. As for you, the anointing you receive from him remains in you, and you do not need anyone to teach you. But his anointing teaches you about all things, and that anointing is real. It's not the counterfeit anointing that those people were talking about. Now, if you just read, you know, especially verse 27 by itself, great. I don't need anyone to teach me anything. And I've, I've seen people say, 
I just need an anointing from the Holy Spirit. I don't need anyone to teach me anything. What, what did they think John was actually trying to do here? Wasn't he teaching us things, right? The context here is that they didn't need to be taught about these special secret doctrines and this, all this teaching that was an addition to, to the Word of God here. Well, let me give you an, another example. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning because they have been born of God. And I've seen people very confused, and some people question their salvation because they've got a sin that they is so habituated in their life that they keep going back to it. They hate it, but sometimes it's almost like an addiction. And there, there are sins like that. We're never going to get to the place. But if you just rip this verse out of its context, you go, whoa, I'm not even saved. I'm in trouble here. John is writing to people who are saying that you can do whatever you want because your body doesn't matter. And so he's saying, look, if you really are a believer, you can't have that attitude. That sin you're going to have to, you view as something you want to move away from, be safe from, not something that doesn't matter. And so that's the idea here. And here's where we're going with this. Ethics always follow theology. And that's why it's so important to get biblical teaching right. Because what we believe will always manifest itself in some way in what we do. In what we do. Let's stop here just for a second. The people of this time, uh, of those who had separated, were following pretty much the values and mindset of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was not without a type of religion, very much had a cultural religion, in which Nero was Lord, and then most of the people, the Gentiles at least, would practice what were called mystery religions. And they were a type of idolatry, but more particularly, they were a way that you you were initiated into this secret cultish place or, or system and, and secret knowledge. fits very much like what was happening here. But in all this, all this, there was not any emphasis on personal morality. You could do what you want. You could drink to excess. You could get drunk every night if you want. You can be a glutton. You can, you can sleep around. You can visit prostitutes, which is really the most common form of immorality at this time. Why? Well, those are bodily things. <laughs> Your spirit is inside. It's not affected by these things. So, the, what we believe is going to determine what we do. Now, we don't have this particular false teaching in our culture anymore. We probably have some aspects of it. In fact, the church has really been influenced by this more than it should be. That whole idea that the physical is less valuable than the spiritual really has played itself out in a lot of church history. But we will have other false beliefs about the gospel floating around in our culture. And unless we're able to identify and confront them, we're probably going to be influenced by them at least a little. I went to a church some years ago in Arizona. I was uh, on vacation by myself. You know, I'd like to go out there and do some hiking uh, once a winter if I can. And uh, so anyway, Amy wasn't there. I was visiting my mom, staying with her and uh, her church for whatever reason, I don't know if it was the timing or what, I wasn't going to go to that one. So I looked in, online, saw this church, wasn't too far, I could walk, which I wanted to do. And I watched this church, and um, 
And this is the only church I had ever walked out of in the middle of the service. In fact, I couldn't imagine doing that before. But I went into this church. And you go in, and right in the lobby, there's this large bookstore called Winner's Bookstore, which should have been the first red flag. I go in. There's not one person except the, the one who's at the door, you know, handing out stuff, who, who greets me at all. People come in. They don't know each other because this is a very, very large building. They come in by themselves or, or with their, their spouse or the family unit. They sit down. There's no interaction. The worship team comes up. They do songs. Only one of those songs that they do even mentions Jesus by name. The others are about revving ourselves up, getting ourselves excited because there's going to be a miracle service. And, the, you know, it, it, and then the preacher comes up and he starts talking about the church, starts talking about how they're influential, starts talking about how they need to give to the church. Jesus is himself an example how he gave to, the, to God and then God blessed him with this beautiful mansion and these, these wonderful cars. And I realized... I was 35 minutes into this service and the name of Jesus had been mentioned one time in a song and that was it. And I got up and left. Because what was going on there was indicative of really the false religion that's, that's very common in our culture. And that is that this is about fulfilling my needs. And so the sermons are going to be about giving so you can get more, having better health, better relationships, uh, better better. Uh, prosperity, a better uh, career opportunities. It's about making your life good right now in the values of the world. And that is very, very common. John can't envision that. And so he, he points out again and again what the gospel is really about. All right. So enough of all that. Let's dive into chapter one. And again, with this background, we're not going to go into this each time. But I think you're going to see how it does really affect things here. All right, so John is going to give us teaching. Well, he's going to give it to them first. Remember, it's, it's written to them for us, to them for us. So there's going to be spiritual principles here that we're going to have to flesh out in our own situation. What does he teach? First things first. <laughs> he wants to emphasize that Jesus is God who has come into the physical world in a physical body. Because this was at the very heart of the gospel, and this is what was denied. So you'll see this introduction. It might sound strange to us. Why would he begin this way? Well, he's harkening back to this gospel, right? Where he talked about Jesus as one who was with God and the one who was God. And all things were created by him. And then you go down to verse 18 of John chapter 1. And the word, this word that was with God and was God, became flesh, carne, and dwelt among us. So he's harking back to that. He's, he's saying, guys, remember, by, by associating, he's saying, remember this. And then he says, we, and he's talking about, I think, himself and the other apostles. He says, look, we have heard this person. We have heard his voice. We have seen him with our eyes. We have looked at him. The idea is gazing. And we have, we have our hands have touched him concerning the word of life. And so I, I emphasize by underlining here all the times John talks about this Jesus was not a phantom. It, he didn't just appear as, a, as God like some divine hologram. No, he was an act, actually God and somehow manifested in human flesh. Jesus is God. He's coming to the physical world 
in a physical body. Now, here's the second part then. Fellowship with God is only through this Jesus and with those who are also in Jesus. You see, the, the false teachers apparently had an idea of fellowship. It's kind of this intellectual union and understanding. But John's not content with that because that's not what the gospel is. Here's what he's telling us. This God, the one who's above all things and everything, is a person, not an idea. And yet this person dwells in a trinity. And in the form of Jesus Christ, he has dwelt among us. Why? So that we could have fellowship with the Father. He didn't come to teach us these secret doctrines. He didn't come to teach us how to make our best life now. He came in order to bring us to the Father, to expand the circle of inner Trinitarian love. This is why he came. Because his heart, the one who made you, his heart is still for you, he's saying. God wants to draw you to himself. And he does that through Jesus. And so he emphasizes here. This life was made manifest. That's what we're proclaiming to you. We, we've seen it and heard it. Why? In order that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. That's the end game here. I'm not writing this to you so that you keep the rules better. I'm not writing this to you to make your life better right now. I'm writing this to you because there are much bigger fish to fry. Your greatest need is your eternal separation from God, and the greatest thing then that God could ever do is draw you back. And that's what he does through Jesus Christ. The gospel tells us there is a union between God and man that's possible not only in the person of Jesus Christ, but with those who are in Christ. God doesn't save us to be religious adherents, but there is this union with him that's at the heart of the gospel. Here it's called fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia. Uh, you might have some idea what that is like. And it's like you know, it can be applied in a business venture, but I think better a marriage idea. Two people join together in this way. Now, one of the things John's going to bring out here again and again is that part of the package deal here is that there's also this fellowship with other believers. Do you see that? We have felt that you may have fellowship with us. And uh, in our fellowship is with the Father, with the Son, Jesus Christ. Um, I remember when I married my, my wonderful wife. And guess what? I didn't just marry her. Well, I did just marry her. Okay. Um, there weren't any other people I married. But where I'm going is that you're going to get trouble here. When I married her, she wasn't the only person who came into my family unit now. All of a sudden, I had a, a brother-in-law. I had, I had another set of parents. I had extended cousins. And, 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 and some of those people became very, very dear and valuable to me. And that's because it was a package deal. When I came into union with her, I came into union with them. Let me give you another example of this. Yesterday, Prince Philip, the, uh, the husband of Queen Elizabeth of England, uh, had his funeral. And they would read all his titles, and he had three paragraphs full of titles, you know. But you know, when he married her, he didn't have those titles. In fact, Philip, when he married her, or when they became engaged at least, wasn't even an English citizen. He had royal blood. He was from the 
Danish line and from the Greek line of, of, of royalty. I mean, it's not like he was top of the chain, but it wasn't like he was, you know, just some bum out on the street. But his family had been exiled because of World War II politics out of Greece, and he he actually, though he was born in Greece, he was raised in in uh, in England. I'm sorry, he was raised in France. And so when he and she got married, he had to renounce all those other relationships, uh, those other titles and, and roles. And instead, he was naturalized as an English citizen, and then he was given the title. He was given the title of the Duke of Edinburgh, the Earl of Maranoth, and Baron Greenwich. And uh, he was also given a new English name. And then later on, he became prince and uh, other things. Like I said, he's got a whole list of titles. You can look them up if you're really interested. But all those things came because of his union with this woman. And that's what he's talking about here. All that God is doing, all of it, comes through Jesus Christ. And when we come to Jesus Christ, we receive all the inheritance and we receive the union with other believers. So that's the second thing he wants to bring us up or bring out to us. Uh, third, this fellowship with God is marked by holiness and love. Here he goes on to say, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. However, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So apparently one of the teachings here was that either God was light and dark, and he was beyond good and evil, which is actually a very common teaching uh, in many parts of the world, or sin and light and darkness wasn't really an issue. You know, it wasn't really a moral concept that you had to worry about. So John goes to great pains to say, look, once you're brought into fellowship with God, you change because God's light. This is a beautiful thought. God brings us into union with himself. We're not just like his pets. We're not, how many of you set up an aquarium before? I have, it's, it's kind of cool. Uh, you know, you bring these in and you bring, Bring the, you set this up, you set these, these fish there in your living room, and, and now all of a sudden you brought them into your home, and there's some sort of relationship with you. You own them, you protect them, you feed them, and whatnot. That's not what God's doing here. He's not making us any sort of being that's that kind of, of relationship with him. He's created people who are in union with him, and you cannot be in union with the holy God without growing in holiness yourself. Now, we're never going to get there. We'll talk about that in a second. But if we have the attitude that, okay, well, I'm, a, I'm in fellowship with Jesus Christ, but I don't grow in holiness at all. It's not even on my radar screen. It's not something I care about at all. That we want, need to ask ourselves a question. Am I really in fellowship with the God who is light? Because I can't say I'm in the light and then walk in darkness. I can't unless I'm deceiving myself. So he talks about... <clears throat> this holiness and love. And, uh, and you're going to see this again and again uh, throughout this book. And then last, I'm, there are five points here in your bulletin. This is going to be the last I bring up today, though. We will sin. But Jesus pr provides forgiveness and cleansing. 
I heard about a, a pastor was writing about a friend of his who was a church member, an attorney. And this church member, this attorney, was had been meditating on some scriptures, and he decided, just as an act of, of grace and you know, to be like God, he was going to cancel all the people who owed him a debt. Of, you know, all the people who owed him debt more than six months. He was just going to cancel them all. So he drafted a letter explaining his decision and the biblical basis for it. And he sent 17 debt canceling letters via certified mail. One by one, the letters began to return unsigned and undelivered. Why? 16 of those letters eventually came back to him unopened and unsigned for because the clients refused to sign for them, assuming that he has, was pestering them to pay their debt when he was offering them forgiveness. Sometimes we can be like that with God, right? I can't come to him because he's going to, you know, I fail too often. And, and, and all he's saying is, look, come to me and receive this forgiveness again and again. That's why he says here, we, we need to walk in light. That's where our fellowship is. But the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we don't have sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, one of my favorite verses in the scriptures, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us all sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know why I love this verse? Two reasons. Number one, what's the basis for his forgiveness? Is it because... Well, I can come to God and ask forgiveness because in other areas of my life, I've been doing pretty well, right? Yeah, I screwed up big time in this area. But look at all these other good things I've done. Or is it, well, okay, yeah, I, I failed here, I sinned here, but, you know, this is the first time I've done that in, in quite a while. So, you know, I, I, overall, I'm doing okay. So I can come to God and ask forgiveness now. No, what's the basis for our coming to God and forgiveness again and again? And by the way, the Greek tenses here make this very clear that he's talking about this is ongoing coming to Christ, even as a believer, coming to him with our forgiveness and our repentance. And the basis is that God is faithful and just. He is faithful to his own promise and word that he will forgive us no matter what we've done. I love that. Second thing I love about this verse is that little word, all. The evil one will whisper in our ears. Yeah, well, God might want to forgive people's sins in general, but yours are pretty bad. Do you know how many times you've done this sin, even after you said you won't, even after you've confessed before? You think God wants you back on, you know, before him, groveling on your knees again? He's sick of it. Yeah, that is not the voice of God. That is the voice of the accuser. Here he tells us, I will forgive all sins, all transgressions, all iniquities, all unrighteousness. There is not this gradation of, okay, here are these little sins and here are these big sins, and all if I keep it under here will I be forgiven. No. The word is all, because it's based on God's righteousness, not whether we're doing okay or not. That is a beautiful thought. That is a wondrous thing. There is a beautiful story in the Gospel of John. Same guy who wrote this passage wrote that in John 13. You remember it? Jesus is going 
to be betrayed that night. He's going to the trial that night. His, his execution, his crucifixion will be that night or the early part of the next day. And in the midst of that context, he gathers his disciples for teaching and he begins, he begins by washing their feet like a servant would. And Peter, like, no way. <laughs> no way, Jose, you are not washing my feet. You're the Messiah. I, I'm just this fisherman guy. You're not washing my feet. And Jesus looks him in the eye and says, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Peter's like, dang, I, I missed it again. He's, he's talking about a spiritual application here, right? He's talking about being cleansed from sin and being, oh, okay, yeah. And then he says, okay, Lord, well, not just my feet, but my head's in my hand as well. And Jesus responds, the one who's, been, who's had a bath doesn't need to have another bath right away. They don't need another bath. They, they just need their, their feet cleaned. And you are clean because of my word. And that's what he's saying to us. If we have become a believer, we don't get saved again. All right? I don't get married to my wife again, right? Because what happened with our salvation is we were brought to this union. That's not broken we don't have to be reunited with Christ that way. But what we need to do is say, God, as I walked in this world, I collected all the dust there. Some of it's my fault. I know it. Some of it's there, and I, it's just part of the world. I didn't even really realize it until I see it now. Will you cleanse me again? God says yes. So for, maybe for us, as we approach this gospel of 1 John, maybe the word of God to us is this. I want you to recognize how central Jesus is and the fellowship that he brings is to me. And I want you to let that be central in your life as well. I want you to be focused on what it can mean to grow in that union with myself, but also with other believers. Because that's part of the package deal. And I want you in this, in this union between you and I, to become more like me. Not because I'm some kind of control freak. I, I would have other ways of doing it if I was. But because in your sin, you need that cleansing. You need to be brought into the light and, and changed by that light again and again. Baptist says in 1 Corinthians, we are to shine. We are to reflect his light into the world. Maybe that's what God is saying to us. Don't let your sin hold you back. Let it be something that spurs you on to greater union because you see and feel this grace again and again. Now, it may be the case that we have not come to that point of decision of Christ, putting our faith in, in, in Christ at all yet. Maybe, you know, we, we want to be a Christian. We, we want to be right with God. We want to avoid hell, but we're trying to do that by some sort of mixture of religious works and, and, and good vibes, you know being spiritual but not religious or something. And maybe what the word of God is to us today then is this. The appointed way that I have chosen to have fellowship with mankind is through Jesus. And the forgiveness that he offers on the cross, this is the way. This is my hand out to you. This is how you receive this gift of eternal life in union with God and others. And there is no sin that you have ever done that I will not forgive 
as part of that transaction. I'm going to end with this story. It's by Max Lucado. In one of his books, he was a missionary to Brazil many years and heard, realized a story that he had heard down there. Longing to live her poor Brazilian neighborhood, Christina wanted to see the world. Discontent with having a home with only a pallet on the floor, a wash basin, and a wood-burning stove, she dreamed of a better life in the city. One morning, she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart. Knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, attractive daughter, her mother, Maria, hurriedly packed up to go to find her. On her way to the bus stop, she, she went to the drugstore for one last thing, pictures. She sat in the photograph booth. Some of us remember those, right? She spent all she could on pictures of herself. With her purse full of small black and white photos of herself, she boarded the next bus to Rio de Janeiro. Maria knew that Christina had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that before were unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search, bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with a reputation for streetwalkers or prostitutes. She went to them all. And in each place, she left her picture, taped on a bathroom mirror, tacked to a hotel bulletin board, fastened in a corner phone booth, and on the back of each picture, she wrote a note. It wasn't too long before both the money and the pictures ran out, and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended to the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired. Her brown eyes no longer danced with youth but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken. Her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over, she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet with her mother. As she reached the bottom of the stairs that day, her eyes noticed a familiar face. She looked again, and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother. Her eyes burned, her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo Written on the back was this compelling invitation. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Come home. Whatever you have done, whatever you have become, it doesn't matter. Come home.